0: We are going to continue in our series in the book of Malachi. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Malachi chapter three. Malachi chapter three. And uh, I got a lot here. I'm going to try not to talk super fast. I'm kind of prone to do that. Um, But if you ever need to go back and listen to what was preached here on the Sunday, you can go to our our website, which is redemptionaz.com, or get the app and you can get the sermons there. But Malachi chapter three. And again, we'll have the text up on the screen for you. Uh, So you can follow along. Now, what if I told you there was a substance on earth that God has given to us that has the power to provide energy, to Homes and schools and and hospitals. And this substance, it has the power to raise up the quality of life for families and communities and nations. And that very same power is actually very volatile as well. And just as it has the power to fuel and to raise up, it has the power to tear down and to destroy. This power can be very constructive or very destructive. And this power is something that everybody here, Uh, not just gets to manage, but has to manage. And it's the power of money. And money, if channeled the right way, can improve the quality of life, or it can lead to some of the worst evils in our society. Money is like water. It can, uh, if it has no boundaries, it can flood and destroy. Or if it's dammed up and becomes stagnant like a swamp. Or it can be like a river that has appropriate boundaries and it can give life to all that's around it um, if it's channeled the right way. And that's really the way that money is supposed to operate. It's supposed to flow in and out of your life in a healthy way that brings. Life to others. But before we can talk about how money shapes the world, we need to talk about how money shapes. Your World. And the Bible actually has quite a bit to talk about money and greed and wealth and contentment. There's over 2,000 verses. It's a very important topic in the Bible. Now, if you're here for the first time or you were invited by somebody and this is your first time, don't be giving them the side eye right now. Like they had no idea we were talking about money today. So this is not a setup. Uh, in fact, if you've been here for a while, you know we very rarely talk about money, uh, but it's in our our passage here this morning, so we have to talk about it. Also, this is not a message that has a big ask that's associated with it. A lot of times when, when they talk about money in, in churches, it's usually because there's some kind of capital campaign or there's some kind of ask, some kind of thing they're trying to raise money for. This is not that at, at all. Um, actually, it's it's a great privilege and responsibility to be a leader in a church that is extremely generous, a church that gives away hundreds of thousands of dollars every year. Um, I also am aware of the stereo of pastors who ask for money and how that can go wrong. So this is not that. You don't have to follow me out to the parking lot to see what I drive after this message. It's it's an old Jeep that's missing a back window. I'll just settle that for you there. Um, this is not a message about trying to help me out with something personally, um, but I do feel like it can help all of us um, with an area of our life that's very important. So let's pray and just ask God to help us this morning. Father in heaven, I thank you, for for the way that you provide for us. God, I thank you for your generosity towards us, seen in the person of Jesus. God, we just celebrated you at this time of communion. You tell us in your word that you, you didn't spare your own son. So how, how will you not graciously give us all the things that we need? So <laughs> Father, I trust that. I trust you this morning. Jesus, we, um, we wanna make much of you and we wanna see you for who you are. And Holy Spirit, we need you for that. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you illuminate the word of God and would you bring conviction where it's needed and would we, by your kindness, be led to repentance this morning? God, make us generous just as you are generous with us. It's in your name we pray, amen. Malachi chapter 3, and we're going to be in verses 6 through 12. I'll read that and you can just follow along. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change, God says, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. And God says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? And God says in verse 8, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? And God replies, in tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. And he says verse 10, "'Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, "'that there may be food in my house. "'Test me in this,' says the Lord Almighty, "'and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven "'and pour out so much blessing "'that there will not be room enough to store it. "'I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, "'and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit "'before it is ripe,' says the Lord Almighty. "'Then all the nations will call you blessed, "'for yours will be a delightful land,' says the Lord Almighty.'" Now here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at three principles about money this morning. And they're principles, not necessarily practices. A lot of times there are messages that have practices or what to do with your money. These are three principles of how we are to think about money. We're going to look at the first principle, which is the problem of the power of money. The problem of the power of money. Now money is uh, morally neutral. Money is not evil. Uh, In fact, money is nice to have. That's a hot take from me. You can write that down. Money, nice to have. The problem is we get evil with money when we treat it like a God and not a gift. Money's not evil, but we get evil when we treat money like it's a god and not a gift. But there's a problem of the power of money, and we need to see what God has to teach us about that. The second uh, principle is is the pathway to a godly perspective on money. There's a pathway the Bible lays out that gives us a godly perspective on money, meaning like how should we see money or how should we think about money? The Bible helps us with that. We're going to look at the wisdom writer, uh, chiefly. Solomon, who's the wealthiest man to ever live, and and how he helps us to think about money. And then lastly, we see this in our passage this morning, the promise of God to his people, the promise of God to his people. There's a freedom way that God gives us. So we've got the problem of the power of money, the pathway uh, to a godly perspective, and the promise of God to his people. And in our section in Malachi 3, in verse 8 and 9, there's a question there. And that's been the pattern that we've seen in this book, if you've been with us. And the and, and the, the, the question is, will man rob God? God is asking, will a mere mortal, will a man rob God? And he says, but yet you, you are robbing me. And Hebrew scholars are kind of puzzled over this word here because it's not the normal Hebrew word for rob, which just simply means to take something that doesn't belong for you. It's actually um, a, a, a word that's only used in one other place in the Bible. And it's a word that really means to oppress or to plunder. It's the sort of word that you would used to describe a wealthy country that would come in to take over a poorer town or village. Uh, It's a very violent word. And scholars are kind of puzzled by this because it just seems that why would God use that type of language? Like, how could people oppress God in that way? Just mere mortals. How could they have that level of violence against God? And so when the people hear this, they're shocked. And it's, it's actually kind of a sarcastic response that they're having. They say, how could we rob you? What, what are you talking about? What do you mean return? It's not like we ever went anywhere. And what God drills down on them, and, and he's saying, I'm talking about your lack of generosity with your money. I'm talking about the fact that you hold on to too much of it and you spend too much on yourself and you don't give enough away. And what he's talking about when when he says, you rob me, he's talking about their stinginess. Their lack of generation, generosity, and he's saying it goes much deeper, and it's far more systemic than you think it is. And the fact that people are oblivious to this shows us the the how how evil we can get around money, and how money has the power to blind us to it. In in, in First Chronicles chapter twenty-eight and twenty-nine, there's a scene: David and the people. David's raising money so that they can build a temple, so the dwelling place of God, that the the the, the house of God. And in in the end of chapter 29, listen to what David says. He gets everybody together and he says this, praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father, Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. He says, "Yours yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Look at verse 12. Wealth and honor come from you, You are the ruler of all things, and in your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give thanks and praise your glorious name, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Because everything comes from you, and we have only given you what comes from your hand. He says everything comes from you and we've only given you what is yours to begin with. So this teaches us that anything that we have, anything that we have is a gift from God. Now this pushes against our individualism because our thought is, well, listen. I have worked very hard for what I have. And that's true, but you have worked for hard for what you have with abilities and opportunities, and circumstances that God has provided. And you could say, yeah, well, I've worked really hard, or or, or, I have what I have because of what I have done, but had God decided that you were born in Central African Republic or South Sudan, it would be a very different set of circumstances no matter how hard you work. Your abilities and opportunities and circumstances are God-given, and if you have more wealth than someone else, ordinarily it's because God allowed for it everything you have is a gift. And even when God gives you something, he doesn't relinquish ownership of it. Psalm 24 one says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. That's fairly comprehensive of what belongs to God. You've been given it But you've been given it the way that a money manager responds and relates with wealth or finances of investors or clients. Not as an owner, but as a broker and as a steward. If you're a money manager and the money that you are investing on behalf of somebody else grows, you get excited about that because that does benefit you. But you should never start to think about like, well, oh, all of that is my money. There's an accountability to the money that you've been given. There's a certain way and certain desires of the one who has given you the money and how you're supposed to invest it and how you're supposed to manage those funds. And if you start to act like all of that money is mine, there's a word for that. It's called fraud And God is the ultimate creator and investor. And in his word, we see that he has created this world and he's given us resources and abilities and finances to invest in the world that he's made in a certain way. He has a particular set of values for how his world should work. And he thinks that those things should work in peace and harmony together for the good of people, for the fame of Jesus. And so if you see what you have, not as a a gift of God, but you see yourself as an owner of all the stuff that you have, then you are plundering God's creation and you are devolving God's world and you are defrauding the investor. So verse eight is telling us that money has power over us and it's telling us that we're kind of blind to the power that it has over us. How are we robbing you? How are you robbing you, God? Money's different than other things because you're blind to how it's affecting you. In the Bible, when it talks about things like materialism and greed, uh, it says that it's a sin of the eye because it blinds you to its presence. So your your love for money, your need for money, possessions, and over and over again, the Bible says it's unlike other sins because you can't see it in yourself. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, watch out, he uses this phrase, watch out for all kinds of greed. Now he doesn't say things like, and watch out for adultery. Because adultery, you know, you can see when that's happening, you know, oh, that's not my spouse. You don't need to be told, watch out for that. (laughs) But materialism and greed is really hard for us to see because you'll always be able to look to someone else and be like, well, I don't spend like they do, or I don't treat money the way that they do. And so you cannot always see it in yourself. And if that's true, it's safe to assume that greed and materialism are in you and you should be watching out for it. Now, the Bible does give us a helpful kind of guideline to see if we're even in the ballpark of what it is to be a generous person. It's not the only way, but it's one way, and it's in the passage that we're looking at this morning, and it's a standard called the tithe. The tithe is a word that means the 10th part or 10%. And and you see it in Malachi 3, 8 through 10. Now, the Bible shows us in the Old Testament and in the Hebrew Scriptures that God required his people to give away 10% of their annual income to charity and ministry. And there were three, actually three main tithes a year. There was a tithe that went to support full-time religious workers. These were the the Levites, and the Levites didn't have any land of their own. There was a tithe that was uh, collected to provide a meal for fellowship and celebration. And then there was a tithe that was collected to provide for the needs of the poor, the aliens, the orphans, and the the widows. And then on top of that, there was a provision for free will offerings and personal giving above and beyond the tithe so that the tithe never really stood alone. So when we talk about the tithe in the Old Testament, the question that always comes up for us as a New Testament church is, is there an obligation for the New Testament church to tithe? How do we... We, as a New Testament church, relate to an Old Testament law or standard. And even though the tithe no longer applies in the same way as it did in the Old Testament to New Testament Christians, God's priorities for giving, which is uh, ministers, mission, fellowship, and charity, has not changed. There is a place in the New Testament where the tithe is mentioned, and it's in Luke chapter 11, verse 42. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were these religious leaders who um really tried to live by the letter of the the, the law. And he says to them, he says, Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kind of garden herbs. So the, the tithe was primarily an agricultural gift, not necessarily a financial gift. He says, you do, you give a tenth, but you neglect justice and love of God. He said, you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, first of all, he says it's right to tithe. He doesn't condemn their tithing. He says it's right that you tithe. But he says, the problem with you Pharisees is that there's a need in the community that demands to be met financially, and love and justice demands that you meet it, but you have this legalistic limitation, and you think because you've given your 10% already, that you're under no other obligation to meet the needs of the poor in your community. He says, you don't go beyond the tithe, and that shows that you are not run by love and justice, but you're run by your code of conduct. And and here's what I think Jesus is getting at. He's saying, look, for the Old Testament people, where law and you have a sacrificial system and the 10% that was required, he says, now you have the, the New Testament people with all the blessings and the privileges of grace and mercy and forgiveness and the cross of Christ, you should not expect to give less than the Old Testament people of God. You should give more. We're not supposed to see the tithe as a limit to our giving, but as a starting line. To be biblically generous is not to ask how much of my money am I giving to God. To be biblically generous is to ask how much of God's money am I keeping for myself. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he says this. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Now, some of you, you hear that and you're like, that is crazy. <laughs> that is just way too much. Be careful because it could be that you're blind to the power that money has over you. And that's uncomfortable. I know. I feel it too. Imagine having to study to stand up in front of people and say this. Verse 10, it says, bring the full tithe, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And that word house there means temple. God's talking about his temple. He's saying, make sure that you give your first fruits, the first, the best of what you have, bring all of it into the storehouse in this temple. So if he's telling the people of Malachi to bring their first fruits into the temple, what's that mean for us today? A lot of times when people look at this, they'll say, well, if 10% went to the temple, that means 10% should go to the local church. And there's a little bit of an issue with that. And here's why. The temple was not the local church. You didn't have little temples on every corner. The temple was not a local body. Not everybody could even go to the temple because it was so far away. The temple was the institutional seat for the service of God for the entire society. And when you gave your money to the temple, it supported the spiritual community of the entire country. And when you gave your money to the temple, it supported the poor and the entire culture. So there is no church or organization or charity like that. There's nothing as comprehensive as that. The word storehouse, though, does kind of help us as far as how we are supposed to be giving. Because that word storehouse, it's a Hebrew word that means treasury. And so you could read that, what God is saying, you could read it as, Bring your treasure, what you treasure the most, into my treasury. You see, the issue with giving and the church, or giving and Christians, is not just that Christians don't give enough to their local church, it's that Christians do not give in biblical proportion with biblical joy, period. The fact is that Christians do not give in biblical proportion with biblical joy, because if they did, all the ministries would be funded, all the charities would be funded, inside and outside the walls of churches, there's a pastor and author, his name's Tim Keller, who's been very helpful for me in studying for this. And in his teaching, he says this. He says, when God says, bring me the whole tithe into my treasury, into my temple, into the worship of me for my purposes in the world, what is implied is that if you're not giving to God's treasury, then your tithe is in some other temple. And here's how he illustrates that. He says, if it's very difficult for you to give to charity or for you to give to the church, it's just something that's really hard for you. You just, you you got a hard time writing that check you got a hard time swiping your card on that you have a hard time giving to the church or to charity but when it comes to you buying clothes when it comes to you kind of buying outfits well that's easy you can do that no problem he's saying then your real temple is your wardrobe and the real treasury of your real temple is your personal appearance and how people perceive you physically gaining a sense of acceptance or desirability based on what you're wearing. He says, if it's really difficult for you to give to church or charity, but it's really easy, it's like no problem at all, you don't even give it a second thought to uh, buy uh, something for your home, furnishings, decor, renovations, he says, then your real temple is your home, your real place of significance, your real treasury is there. Or maybe you look at people who spend money on things like cars or clothes or even their home, and you say, those people are all crazy because I've lived in the same home. I've driven the same car. I wear the same shoes for years. But for you, it's very difficult to be generous or to give to others or to give to charity or church. Um, but it's very, very easy for you to, to save. And your security is not on how much you spend, but on how much you have in the bank. And he says, for you, your security, your bank is your Temple, you look at the amounts that you have in your bank account and you say, That's what gives me control in a chaotic world. You see, it's effortless to spend money on whatever is your real God. Whatever is the easiest place in your life for you to spend money, I don't even have to think about it. That's your real God because money flows very easily in and out of the treasury of your real temple. Now, if you're listening to this, you're thinking, all right, so is this guy saying, like, I can't buy clothes or have a house or save money? I'm, I'm not saying that at all because those aren't bad things. Those are all, all good things. I have those things. The issue is, do those things have me? The issue is when those things aren't treated like a gift to be given but a God to be worshipped. If you're in this room and you have stuff... That's great. That is blessing of God on your life. You've got stuff. That's great. Does your stuff have you? Because that's an issue. And here's the deal. Everybody, you could be in this room and you're not a Christian, you're not a Bible person. You think all this is nuts. I get it. But everybody in here tithes to something. Something in your life gets your first and gets your best, and it's whatever gives you the most meaning or provides you the greatest security in life. That's what gets your tithe. That's your real God. That's your real Savior. That's the real source of your significance and your security. It's not even that you worship money. It's not even that you worship money. It's that we, what we spend our money on reveals what we worship. And what we worship reveals our heart's true affections. Don't rob God of worship. That's the whole point. That's the heart of Malachi. The people of God have a worship disorder. They have disordered worship. And God says, repent. God says, return to me. I'll return to you. The idols that you're using money to get will never give you what you're looking for. The biggest savings account in the world cannot give you what only God can give you. The only true security, true significance, true acceptance, true joy, true satisfaction, true love that you can get and can't lose is found in him and him alone. So if all that's true, if all that's true, what is the pathway to a godly perspective on money? What's the best way to think about money? I've got four things real quick. The first is trust God. Trust God. The first thing is to trust God. Malachi 3:10 right there it says God says, "Look, will you just just test me in this?" Test me and see what I won't do in your life. Now, this passage gets hijacked a lot by this kind of health, wealth, prosperity teaching where it just says, look, you give money to the church, there's going to be a whole lot more money that's given to you. And I, I don't believe that. Now, there are crazy things that can happen. You might put some money in an offering box on the way out today and you get to the parking lot and somebody swapped out your Civic for a Bentley. That could happen. And I, for you, that's, that'd be great. I hope it happens for you. But I doubt it. But the reality is, the way that it often works is that God uses really natural means to bless you. If you trust God, he will take care of you. Now, that doesn't mean, there's a lot of stories in this room, there's a lot of stories in my life that God can't or won't provide in crazy ways for his kids if he chooses to do that. It doesn't mean that won't happen, but it does deny our ability to manipulate him for our financial gain because we misread this text. The promise in Malachi 3 is is to those priests of Judah who are robbing God and experiences drought as a result. And what he's promising is literal showers so that their crops will grow. It's not even necessarily talking about anything financial. The real blessing though, the real blessing of your generosity and of your con- and contentment is your freedom from being enslaved to the power of money and not being controlled of it. That's the real blessing of generosity. That it's, that it's one less thing in your life that has control, functional control over you. Which is why Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, can talk to the Corinthian church. He, he says this. He's talking about these Macedonian churches that are extremely poor. And he's like, I commend them for their generosity. You should try to be like them because they have experienced, and he uses this line, the grace of giving. Grace, unmerited, undeserved favor of God. The favor of God. Every time they give, they're like, we are experiencing this amazing grace of God in our giving. It's a grace of giving. And Paul doesn't put a bunch of pressure on them when he writes to them in 2 Corinthians 8. He doesn't say, hey, I'm an apostle. You're a Christian. You need to give this much. He doesn't placate on their emotions. He says, just look at all these poor orphans over here. Look how much you have and how little they have. No, he says, look look at Jesus who was rich but for our sake became poor so that you could become rich. It's grace for you to give. He says, if you don't have the freedom to give extravagantly and to bless the world with your wealth, it's because something besides Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Generosity is one of the single best indicators of whether we really trust God and whether we really are surrendered to him. And that's the foundational idea in the Bible when it comes to your money, trusting that God built the world and he knows how it works and you're going to work in his way. And if you do, you will flourish and the community around you will flourish as well. And God here in Malachi 3, he inserts himself into the equation of your generosity. And in other places, the Bible says, honor the Lord with your wealth and first fruits of your produce and your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. For, for decades, this church has made it a priority to be generous with our resources in our community and around the world. In fact, just last year, you take our Advent offering, the special offering that we have at Christmas Eve, our missions budget, so this is just kind of our regular line item budget for giving to the world, and our benevolence, which is goes to this church community and the community around us. Last year, we gave away uh, $662,000. And this year, we have the potential to do even more. Now, that is not a brag on us, but it is a total brag on God because God allows us to be that generous in our city and our state and around the world and still keep the lights on in this place and manage the, the facility and all the ministry and all the stuff that God has given us. And, and now it could be that it's just magic, right? So M- Neil might know. Ma- ma- money just is showing up there, but I don't really think so. I believe it's the spirit of God who works in the hearts of his people. I believe it's God's blessing on your work and investments. And I believe it's your obedience and people being generous. And I think when we honor God with our money, he honors us so that we can be a blessing to others. So as leadership of this church, we're going to trust God. We're going to trust God with our money. And that's the very first thing. You want a new perspective. You want to know the path to a better perspective on your money. The first thing you have to do is trust God. The second thing is you have to love people. So when you trust God, then you'll know what he loves and you'll see what he loves as people. Proverbs 14, 31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Do you want to honor God? Songs, great. Read your Bible, awesome. But God delights when we give to those who can't necessarily give back to us because we are recognizing the imprint of divinity on them and we're recognizing the worth and the value and the dignity that they have simply because God made them and we're going to take care of them and God delights in that. The normal way we think about our money is when we get our money, the very first thing that we think about is, okay, how do I spend this money to maintain my standard of living? And then once I've spent that money to maintain my standard of living, then if I've got some left over, then I'll put a little bit into savings just because. And then after all of that, if there's any left over, I'll give a little bit to church or charity or the needs of those around me. And what the Bible encourages us to do, and this is crazy, is to completely flip that upside down, to start With to say, okay, how can I leverage my finances to make a difference in the world for the fame of Jesus and for the good of people? So, the first thing I'm going to think of is how much can I give? And then, how much can I save so that I can be a blessing to my family and to others in the future? And then, how can I adjust my standard of living to the amount of money that I have left? It's a different way to live, but it's a better way to live because we love people. So first, I trust God. Second, I love people. Third, I work hard. And this is just, i this might seem like common sense, but it's not as common as you would think. But Proverbs talks about it. Uh, Proverbs 12, 24, the hand of the diligent will rule, but the sloth will be put into forced labor. The reality is, you work hard and you get paid. Proverbs 12, 11, a hard worker has plenty of food, but a person who chases fantasies has no sense. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lack sense you trust God you love people you work hard and then lastly you, you be content you be content Proverbs 23 the wisdom writer's talking and he's saying look if you get invited to a meal and you sit down with someone who is a ruler observe carefully what's put in front of you look at the food that's put in front of you and, and, and before you get an appetite for that he's like if, that, if you get that appetite and you entice that appetite he's like you might as well go ahead and put a knife to your throat he said, because what's going to happen when you're around the rich, you're going to want to try to keep up with that lifestyle and you'll become a borrower or a slave to the lender and you'll have to compromise morally and, or make some decisions that you regret. So if you get to the table and you start wanting that food, you start wanting that lifestyle, go ahead and pick up, pick up that knife and put it to your throat. What the wisdom writer is trying to say is control your appetite. It's better to be a lowly servant than to play the great man and lack bread. Don't be a $30,000 millionaire. You try to live like a millionaire, but you only make about $30,000. Don't be so leveraged to impress others who will actually never be impressed with you anyway. Understand delayed gratification. And lastly, and this is found in our passage in Malachi 3.7, turn around. And with this, we're done. Turn around. Repent. Repent. A change of mind that leads to a change of life. I was going one way and I don't want to go that way anymore. Some of you in the room, you've just been so careless with your money. You don't have great practices or or patterns of thought when it comes to finances. You have no margin. you're, You're just riddled with debt. You can't save and you don't want to live that way anymore. And the invitation of the Bible, the invitation this morning is not to walk in shame or guilt about that, but turn from that. And a good option for you would be to gain some information and to gain some understanding on how to budget or how to think differently about money. And if that's you, we offer a class here taught by one of our pastors, Matt Dresvik, brilliant, brilliant teacher. Um, it's, the class is called Financial Peace University. You can go to the info desk in the lobby right after the sermon and sign up for that class. That would be a very helpful option if that's you. Now, others of you, you're in this room and and you are hating this sermon. You are hating this because you're like, you know what? It is my money. It's mine. And I want to spend it on me. And I want to spend it on my stuff. And if that's you, you've already no doubt experienced the, sting, the life of, of someone who's stingy. And you see how that shrinks. The life of the stingy shrinks. The generous expands. And the good news and the promise of Malachi is that you, too, can return today. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And you have set your heart on something. And you think, if I have that something, then you'll have significance or security or or satisfaction. And it could be status. It could be a relationship or career. And you set your heart on that. And that's your treasure. And you'll do anything for it. You'll spend anything for it. You'll die for it. And the invitation this morning is just to repent, return to God. He never changes. He doesn't break his promises. It's like the story of Zacchaeus. Uh, Zacchaeus, if you've never heard of him, uh, he was was in the day of Jesus, he was a tax collector, which meant that he would take money from the people, but he would actually extort his own community, his own people, because he would skim off of the top. And, and because he was selfish financially, he was alone and isolated socially. Nobody wanted anything to do with Zacchaeus. He was the scourge of his community. One day, Jesus comes to town. Jesus, everybody, he's at, the, he's at the height of his popularity. He's working miracles. Everybody wants to see Jesus. And so Zacchaeus tries to press through the crowd, but he's a wee little man. A wee little man was he. And so... <laughs> Zacchaeus scurries up this tree so that he can see Jesus. And Jesus spots Zacchaeus, the dude up in the tree. And what does he do if you know the story? There he is. Get him. Bring him down here. Let's take him to jail. No. No, no. He doesn't come at him with shame or guilt or condemnation. He says, Zacchaeus, it's you. I want to be with you. I want to be with you. Come on down. Let's hang out. Let's spend time together. And if you know this story, it's an amazing story. Uh, Jesus, he has this encounter with Zacchaeus. And, and because Jesus came to him, um, he has this life-changing encounter with Jesus and this confrontation of grace. You see, it's not just about you feeling bad about what's going on in your life. A lot of times, we use that as a religious experience. We leave a sermon like, gosh, that sermon made me feel horrible. What a great message. That's not the point. It's not the point for you just to feel bad about your life and what you've been doing. It needs to be change. It needs to be life altering change that happens in an experience of grace. When Zacchaeus has this encounter with Jesus, he goes and he pays back everybody that he had stolen from and he gives a significant amount of money to the poor and the hurting his community. Jesus didn't tell him to do that. He didn't make that a prerequisite for Zacchaeus to be okay with God, but an encounter with Jesus changed him because God is generous with us and that frees us to be generous with others. When you know how much you're loved, you can love. When you know that you can, that Jesus is, God is trustworthy, you can trust him and you can trust your money. He came and died for you. Why? Because you and I are his heart's treasure. Every other treasure in the world makes you die to purchase it. Jesus is the only treasure who died to purchase you. And some of you, you're working yourself into the ground to purchase significance, but Jesus is the significant one who died to purchase you. Look at the radical generosity of Jesus on the cross. And when you see him dying there, because you are the treasure of his heart, then and only then will he become your greatest treasure. And when you see Jesus as your greatest treasure, and then money will not be your source of security or significance or satisfaction or safety. Money will just be money. And you'll see Jesus as all of those things and you'll be free. If you want to be generous like Jesus was to you, don't leave this message and stop and sit down and look at your calculator. Stop and stare at the wonder of the cross. And then you can love like he loved and you can give like he gave. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the way that you are, God. You are the God who provides. And we remember what you have said to us in Malachi, God, that if we return to you, God, you will return to us. And I thank you that your promises are true and faithful. And God, that we can trust you not only with our eternal destiny, God, with, our, with where we will spend eternity, but God, we can trust you with the things that you have given us now. So God, I pray in my own life, God, that I would believe that that's true. And that I'd live like that for the good of others and for your fame, Jesus. And I pray that for our church as well. God, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.